to episode 52 of the Ear Hustling Podcast. I am James. Eric, how you doing? I'm doing good, James. Um, how's it going with you, buddy? Going well, man. Going well. Thanks for asking. Hey, listen, man, we're going to jump right in. It's um, Every now and then we have a show that that is just is, is something very serious that just kind of puts us in a mood that we just kind of want to jump right in. And, and this is one of those episodes. This is episode 52, SB202. What is it and what does it mean for you? We have some very special guests uh, here that we're going to bring in right now. We have three uh, sitting uh, state representatives that is here representing Georgia. We have uh, representing the 61st district here in Atlanta, sitting since 2003, Representative Roger Bruce. Welcome, Mr. Bruce, to the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, we have Representative Jasmine Clark from the 108th District in Lilburn, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Clark. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thanks for being here. And last but not least, from the 99th District in Norcross, we have Representative Marvin Lim. Re Representative Lim, welcome to the show. Thank you as well for having me, and thank you for shining a light on this very important and serious topic. No problem. Thank you all for being here. We know you guys have been in session and it's been long hours and uh, you probably can't wait to get to bed. So uh, but this honestly, you guys being here really shows how important the topic is uh, to you all. Uh, and we're so grateful to have you here to educate our listeners on exactly what SB202 is. So without further ado, Representative Bruce, we're going to just jump right in with you. What is SB202? Uh, it is a, well, it's, it's a law now. Uh, it was a, a bill that uh, basically is voter suppression. Uh, it is a uh, bill that was enacted uh, based on a lie uh, that there was some fraud in, in the uh, voting process. Uh, there's no evidence to support that there was any fraud. And um, it is totally based on a lie. That's powerful. Um, so explain to, to the, the audience, uh, it's based on a lie. How in the world are we here now talking about it being law? It's law because the uh, members of the Republican Party uh, were looking for an opportunity. This is just me talking now. Looking for an opportunity uh, to find a way to suppress the vote. If you can't win the vote by getting more uh, votes than the other person, you uh, rig the election to uh, have fewer people vote uh, you know, for the opposition. And so they're making it difficult uh, for minority uh, voters, uh, elderly voters, people that will typically vote with the Republican, excuse me, with the Democratic Party 
Uh, if you make it more difficult for people to vote, they may not do it. Uh, so like I said, if you can't win by getting more votes, you set up things to have fewer uh, opponents' uh, votes uh, cast. And uh, that's what they're doing. It's, you know, it's, it's an old science. You know, they're just applying it to uh, a new age of people. If you go back in time, uh, you know, when they had us counting the, the jelly beans in the jar, um, that was the same thing that you're seeing now. It's just a different version of it. Um, there's, there was no evidence uh, of, of there being any fraud in any election uh, in the state. And um, they, as I said, they predicated all of this so-called reform uh, on the premise that there was some sort of uh, heavy-duty fraud and that they had to fix it, which just isn't true. Wow. Representative Lim, uh, who and how does it affect Representative Bruce kind of touched on that a little bit. If you can uh, expand on that a little bit for us. You're on mute, Representative Lim. All right. You would think after a year of doing this, I would know how to do this better. <laughs> Apologies for that. Uh, whom does this affect? Uh, very simply, this disproportionately affects uh, BIPOC or minority voters, uh, voters of color, uh, lower income voters. And I think the best way to sh show that is kind of to talk a little bit through what the bill does. Um, and there have been many variations of it. But at the, there's probably three top issues there. One is that it allows very much for basically legislative takeover of the county election board. So we know that every county, and this is through, true throughout all 50 states, counties administer elections. Um, every state has their state elections boards, but counties are the ones closest and they're the ones that know best how to do it. Well, President Trump, then President Trump and many others in the Republican Party weren't quite happy with some of the results. We know, in our three's opinion, the real fraud was President Trump asking in Georgia for those 11,000 votes, trying to find 11,000 votes. This would make that kind of thing easier by allowing for legislative takeover of the state election board. They have stripped powers away from the the Secretary of State even, to prioritize legislative appointments to the state elections board, which can then take over county boards. And again, that's huge because I'm tying that back directly to if they want to try to quote, find votes, I'm using air quotes on a podcast, then this makes it easier to do that. Um, an another thing it really does, and this is equally important, is it expands upon already restrictive voter ID requirements. Um, what it essentially does is we know that in this pandemic year, uh, a lot of people very much took advantage of absentee voting here in Georgia, certainly, record turnouts. Um, for this law, you would now be required to present some form of, of voter ID, usually a driver's license with your applications or ballots. From years, uh, over almost two decades of experience here in Georgia, we know that voter ID requirements disproportionately impact, again, minority voters, BIPOC voters, those with lower income, those who might not have ID. I myself have shared my story of being flagged in 2008 with voter proof of citizenship mandates. Again, this expands it to 
the most popular form right now of voting, which is absentee voting. And then the third uh, main thing it does it regards uh, runoff elections, it makes it uh, kind of a compressed period to vote in, in runoffs. There's a bunch of other issues. Um, and I feel like I'm taking Representative Clark's job because she's been the one and we're both in the same county and she's continually explained this law. But those are some of the main issues uh, right there. And you can see, I think you can draw pretty easily the conclusion on why that would impact certain voters, why we're calling this Jim Crow 2.0. This is not designed for voter integrity, quote unquote, or to address any form of voter fraud. This will impact so many more people and ultimately suppress votes. Wow. Representative Clark, uh, Representative Bruce kind of touched on this, but if you can share your uh, reasoning here, what is the why behind this? So um, I appreciate the question. And the answer is um, they need to find a way to win. And when I say they, I mean the GOP. Right now, the GOP is sinking and they are sinking quickly in the state of Georgia. 2020 saw Georgia become a battleground state. And then the 2021 runoffs saw Georgia send two senators to up to to up to the uh, to Washington DC. So, we are in a position now where they're in panic mode. And in their panic, they decided that they would throw everything but the kitchen sink to figure out how can they claw back their uh their uh, wins and um if you actually look at the trends of where uh, georgia has been heading for the last decade georgia has been turning blue and when in 2018 when stacy abrams um, ran for governor she saw the writing on the wall and even though she was not able to pull it off in 2018 i do not think it is because the votes were not there I think it is because Brian Kemp, who was the Secretary of State at the time, um, had already laid the groundwork for voter suppression, purging many voters off of the voter rolls that were um, eligible voters, and then putting people in a position where they weren't able to vote in 2018. And so she went and, um, you know, she did the work to, to start to fix some of those issues. And she was wildly successful. So while she was not successful in getting the votes in 2018, in 2020, she was successful in getting those Democratic voters to the polls despite a pandemic. At the same time, the GOP was dealing with an identity crisis. They had Trump on the one hand, and then they had the Lincoln Project Republicans on the other hand, and they didn't know what to do with themselves. And so they didn't know whether to love absentee voting or hate absentee voting. They didn't know whether to love early voting or hate at, uh, early voting. They didn't know whether to love the Dominion voting machines or hate the Dominion voting machines. And so in the end, they suppressed their own votes just with their own rhetoric and the person at the helm. And so when they lost a game that they had rigged themselves to win, they were very confused and that put them in panic mode. They never expected to be able to lose elections. They never expected Joe Biden to be able to win Georgia. It wasn't even on their radar. This is from conversations I've had with members of the GOP. It just was unfathomable to them.
And so when he did win, despite this being one of the most scrutinized elections that we've ever had, we had a recount, we had a hand count, we had audits, we had we brought in the GBI and all these different people to make sure that our election was uh, was sound and that every vote was counted and that every vote was counted as cast. Despite all of that, when they still came out on the losing end, they said, we have to do something. Member, a member of the GOP in the well, in the chamber of the House of Representatives, went to the well and said, the system was overwhelmed because too, it was not meant to handle that many people. Hmm. That is the definition of we too many people voted and we need to do something about that. He said it. He gave us the, the, the excuse and the reason right there. Wow. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Eric, I believe you have a question for Representative Bruce. I do, Representative Bruce. Uh, Representative Lim did kind of touch on it a little bit, but I do want to get your perspective on this. Um, do you think that the reason why the governor of Georgia removed the secretary of state from Georgia from overseeing the election, um, the election process, do you think that it was a personal, um, a personal issue that he may have had with the secretary of state? Well, I mean, you know, you're asking me to guess what was on his mind, but I, I, I personally think it was just a function of uh, the, the current Secretary of State wasn't willing to uh, do anything that was going to get him in trouble. Uh, he, he, he did not want to rig the election. He did not want to go manufacture, uh, I think it was 13, you said 11, but I think it was 13,000 votes. He didn't, he, he didn't want to, to go and you know, find him in a, in a desk drawer somewhere. And um, I, I think it was just a pure function of self-survival. He didn't want to be the one going to jail uh, for rigging an election. Okay, pretty short and sweet. But um, uh, another thing that I found interesting is that the fact that the governor is a former secretary of state himself, I, I just found it extremely odd you know, even though all of the different investigations that were taking place that showed that there wasn't any sort of voter fraud, how all of a sudden the landscape in terms of how like runoff elections, you know, who's overseeing those things. I, I just find that, find that a little yeah, odd. They, they, they didn't, they, they're not saying that all of the election was was, was rigged uh, or was just the ones that they lost was rigged. Uh, the ones that they won, you know, they, they were done just fine. <laughs> the irony there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you, Representative Bruce. So we, based off what you all have educated, saying that it was built on lies. Representative Lim, can it be overturned? And if so, how? Can it be overturned? Uh, yes, it will be a difficult fight. I think at this point, the, the fight has certainly moved on from us in the legislature, but we will be involved. Of course, one of the ways that it can be overturned is through the court systems, and those are already in place uh, right now. Uh, various uh, lawsuits that are being coordinated to fight this. So we, have, we, we live in a, in a government where there are three branches of government. This was an attempt by the executive and the legislative branch to rig elections in one party's favor. So now we turn to the judicial branch. So that is, is one way to do it. And everything we've done, for example, when we testify at the well, we wanna make sure 
uh, or, or in our statements, we want to make sure that it's very clear what the intentions of this bill were and what the effects of this bill were. And all of that would be used in, uh, potentially would be used in a lawsuit. Um, a another way that this fight has taken a turn is by pressuring some of the major corporations here in Georgia, uh, corporations like Delta and Home Depot. I believe I was just reading there will now be potentially a boycott starting April 7th. But all that is to say is because the GOP routinely tries to posit Georgia as the best place to do business. And in previous sort of controversial political fights, say having to do with religious freedom, we have seen that pressuring corporations to, to do the right thing, in this case to stand up against voter suppression, uh, can make a difference. Those, those wallets and, and the money that they bring to Georgia really can make a difference. In this case, it was very much a shame that corporations uh, came out a little bit <laughs> slash very late in the game, but that fight still continues. I think that we can potentially still through boycotts and other methods show that uh, if this doesn't change, either if the law isn't overturned or if there isn't some fix, because we have to understand that uh, what this law does is give you know power to the state legislature to take over county boards, but they haven't, A, the law hasn't been signed yet. So, Governor Kemp technically could still veto it or not sign it, but B, even though he might, he will like, well, actually, no, he has signed it. Apologize. He signed it yeah. that day. That was part of the problem. But I think um, apart from that, that doesn't mean that they will necessarily take as much authority as they can, they being the state elections board. So there's still room in my mind to, to pressure corporations to make sure that uh, that they, in fact, show that they are not happy with it and that there will be financial consequences if this is implemented. And I think the third thing is that we continue to fight in general. I think we need to continue telling our stories of, of whom this would impact because um, this is something that impacts us in Georgia, yes, but this impacts people across the country. We're seeing this in Texas right now, a few other states. Because the this voter fraud lie that this based on little to no evidence has effectively for now won in Georgia to disenfranchise so many voters. So that, that narrative is still somehow the one that is winning. So we still need to continue fighting. We need to continue telling the stories. We need to continue making sure that the voter suppression narrative, the Jim Crow 2.0 narrative is the one that wins, not only for Georgia, but I think more broadly because we're seeing this in, in many other states as well. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to um, how it affects the rest of the country in a little bit. I'm, in a little while, I'm glad you brought that up, Representative Blaine. Yeah, if I could add something to it, um, you know, they 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 know that we are going after these corporations and uh, to to try to get them to to come out, and uh, they tried to get ahead of that last night. Uh, a, a bill was introduced and passed uh, out of the House. Uh, to punish Delta Airlines. Uh, Delta had come out and uh, said that they did not support the voter suppression law and uh, felt like it was not good for Georgia. And in return for that, uh, a bill was passed out of the House uh, that would remove the uh, tax credit that they were getting for fuel, the fuel tax. 
And um, that would have cost Delta probably close to $35 million. And, and by doing that, uh, they wanted to send a message, you know, you can uh, come out and speak out, but there's consequences to it. Fortunately, the bill did not get out of the Senate, but they sure tried. Wow. Wow, thanks for sharing that, Representative Bruce. That's, uh, wow. The, the plot thickens. Yeah, exactly. Eric? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, James. Uh, Representative Clark, I, I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, how important do you think the gubernatory, um, the next gubernatorial election will be? I think it's going to be monumentally important. I think it's going to be important for a number of reasons. Number one, I think one of the most important reasons is going to be important, and I used to use that word a lot, um, is because, again, I talked about that trend. Well, this is going to be the test. We have now started seeing Georgia turn bluer and bluer and bluer. However, when it comes to statewide elections, because remember in, in um, January of this year, we had some statewide elections on that same ballot that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were on. But uh, we had um, Daniel Blackman running for the Public Service Commission. And while um, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock got over the finish line, Daniel Blackman did not um, cross over the threshold and win his race as well. So we still have yet to see Democratic wins in the statewide elections. And so while people like me and Representative Bruce and Representative Lim, um, we are right now at the mercy of the pen when it comes to redistricting. And so the state legislature is really going to um, uh, it's going there's going to be some changes because redistricting is coming up. It's this year. And um, we don't know what they're going to do with those lines. And, and and so they have the ability to draw their majority at the state legislative level. However, for constitutional officers and the, and the governor's race, that's the whole state. You can't gerrymander a statewide race. And so we have the opportunity to show that 2020 was not a fluke. We have the opportunity to show that not only was it not a fluke, but now instead of winning by 11,000 votes, we're gonna win by hundreds of thousands of votes because the votes are there, we've shown it. And the thing about Jim Crow 2.0, the thing about this bill that just passed and got signed by the governor is that it has energized us. It has shown people how important their vote is. When I used to go on a campaign trail and sometimes I would knock on people's doors and they would say things like, oh, well, you know, my vote doesn't really count or I don't really have time to vote or these things are already predetermined anyway. So I don't see the point of voting. I think when we pass laws that claw away your rights to the ballot box and your access to the ballot box, when it shortens a uh, runoff from nine weeks where you have time to learn about who's in the runoff and you have time to make a voting plan to three weeks where there's only one week of early voting and no weekend voting. Think about how different January 5th would have looked if we had one week of, of runoff of, of early voting 
and no weekends to vote early in that runoff election. Mind you, millions, uh, 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 over a million people showed up for that election. So just the contracted period itself is going to guarantee long lines if we get as, as big of a turnout as we did in this last runoff. So put all those things together and we are showing people, they are showing people that your vote is important. It's important enough that they wanna take it away from you. And so I think that people are seeing, their eyes are being opened to what's going on. The pandemic was horrible, but one of the things that allowed people to do was pay a little bit more attention to their surroundings. And now there are a lot of people who weren't engaged before that are engaged now. They have uh, grassroots organizations are ready to mobilize. And I think that the 2022 gubernatorial elections are going to be won for the record books in Georgia. Wow, thank you. Uh, I've got one other question, James, before you go on. Uh, yeah. Potential opponents uh, for Governor Kemp. Um, I know you can't speak for anybody, but potential, potential opponents. I know well, who, I'm, who I'm rooting for, but I, I, think so, people, I think people are waiting to hear what Stacy is going to do. I agree. Uh, and once if she if she announces that she's not going to run, there will be at least six or seven people that will you know say that they are going to run. But I don't think that right now, with with her popularity uh, and her resources, that anybody's going to want to go up against her. When and I also want to point. I also want to point out that right now, um, I'm not even sure it'll be Abrams versus Kemp if Abrams gets in, because I don't even know if Kemp is going to make it out of a Republican primary. Because you know, on the Republican side, I talked about this earlier. You got your Trump versus your Lincoln Republicans, and um, I don't know. I don't know. The Trump Republicans want Kemp out of there, and the Lincoln Republicans want Kemp out of there because he was. Uh, just basically uh, Trump's lapdog in Georgia. He was Trump 2.0 in Georgia. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, I heard in, in the background the question about the deadline. Qualifying isn't until March of next year. So people will begin announcing way before that. But people have all the way until March of 2022 to decide if they're going to run for that office. I would not... I, um, I would not uh, recommend waiting until March if you plan on running for governor, but that is when you have the opportunity. All right. Thank you okay. very much. Uh, yep, thank you. Uh, Representative Bruce, what can the citizens of Georgia do now? We heard Representative Lim speak of boycotts. Uh, what else can, can citizens do? Well, I think he, he hit on the major things. Uh, the, the boycotts uh, have proven effective in the past. Uh, I think you, we, we need a buddy system where nobody goes to the polls by themselves. Uh, nobody goes by themselves. You get, you know, five, ten of your best friends and you make it a, an event uh, and, you, and you go to the polls. Uh, I think you um, also have to make sure that uh, people know where their polling place is, uh, that they have all of the identification uh, that they're going to be required to have so that when they get there, they can't turn them away. Um, you know, we're going to have to learn what the, the new rules are, uh, just like we did before, and come up with ways um, 
you know, to 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 work with the rules, but uh, work those rules better than they thought we could. Somebody came to me the other day, and they said, uh, Representative Bruce, they say we can't give away water at the polls. And I said, correct. They said, well, can I sell a, sell water for a nickel? I said, hmm, good question. I don't know. And uh, and so they're going to they're going to be people that are going to test these new laws, uh, just like we did in in, in the old days. Uh, you know, they said we couldn't, you know, uh, be served in the in the restaurants. We, you know, we had to use the blacks only uh, bathrooms, that kind of stuff. And people challenged that. You know, we couldn't ride on the front of the bus. Uh, people were selected uh, to challenge it. You know, they knew they were going to get in trouble. They knew they were going to go to jail uh, for doing it, but they wanted to test uh, what was going on. So we're going to have testers. There are going to be people who are going to be giving out water. Uh, there are going to be people uh, that are going to be doing all of these things that they say we couldn't do to test it and challenge it. It's going to happen. Thank you for sharing. <clears throat> Representative Lim, what seats are up for grabs in the next state representative election? <laughs> that is an interesting question because um, there are quite a few state representatives, both announced and unannounced, for a variety of the other state level constitutional officers, uh, whether that's lieutenant governor, uh, labor commissioner. Etc. Because we have to remember, this is yes, the the top of the ballot in 2022 is the most important, arguably. Um, but there are a variety of other uh, very important races on down the ballot, and races that are important not only for what they can do, but for how they can energize people. I pointed out the labor commissioner. I think that's one position where there's appears to be some bipartisan agreement that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with what's gone on there with the handling of unemployment claims with uh, hundreds of thousands of claim backlogs. So, but that that is going to create uh, new positions, again, both those that we know people are already running for from the state representative and state senator ranks and, and beyond that. So I did wanna say that, that was the very first thing I thought of. But number two, um, we have to flip, we as Democrats very much have to flip um, both the state Senate, of course, but all of us here are on the House side. We very much have to flip the, the House. Um, Representative Clark and Representative Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we have to flip 14 seats. Um, there we are, yes. Yeah, 14 seats to get into the majority. Because right now it is it, very difficult, very difficult for us to get anything uh, done. That doesn't mean we don't have influence in the process. But with SB 202, um, we couldn't, we could barely do anything to, to make it even a little bit better. There were some things in there, but this is a horrible bill. And we could not do anything as far as the legislative drafting process to make it better and voting it out. So there are a lot of those seats. So to, to tack on to, you know, what people can do, I think hey, as, as, as citizens, we do need to, to buddy up. Um, there is going to be more challenges in, in making sure that people have all the proper ID, know 
where their, their polling location is so that they don't get turned away and have their votes not count. But I think people also as citizens should be watching out um, for others who might run. That qualification deadline of March 2022 that uh, Representative Clark mentioned, that also applies to every other state race, including the state legislative races. And I would encourage everyone listening, particularly in Georgia, but more broadly speaking, uh, anyone uh, who might be thinking of running for themselves or think there's someone good in the community, because we do need people that will rally people to the polls. Because that, last thing I'll say there, it, um, we often tend to think of things from the top of the ticket down. Like if Stacey Abrams runs, of course, she's going to generate a lot of people. But there's also a lot that can be said for the efforts that Representative Bruce, Representative Clark, Representative uh, myself makes in our local communities. Um, they might turn out for different reasons. They might turn out because of the labor race. They might turn out for a very local race um, because there are 159 counties. So having that level of local turnout can be energized by having the right candidate running for state representative. So a short answer to say that is there are going to be quite a few state legislative races in play. Okay. I love Can I the add idea. something to that? Oh, I'm, please. Just very quickly, uh, Marvin did an excellent job, but um, the uh, really, really simple answer to that is every legislative uh, race is technically, everyone, we all have to run again. Yes. We as legislators run every two years. Um, and I say that to say that if you have a legislator that you love, then maybe running for a state house is not um, what you want to do because they're probably going to be running again. Um, but just pay attention to the announcements that are made in, in the coming days. Um, but I also don't know if a lot of people realize that even Congress, um, the House of Representatives, they run every two years as well. Um, I um, don't think a lot of people know that. I think they see people that have been there for years and years and years, and they just kind of think that they're just there. And um, they don't realize that they're running every two years also. Um, and it's only the Senate that is every six years. However, Raphael Warnock will have to run again because he's just uh, finishing up Johnny Isaacson's term. So um, our ballots are gonna be pretty long in 2022 even though it is a midterm election. And I think right now, this is the test because historically, with 2018 being the exception, Democrats are known for not showing up in midterm elections. Show up for presidentials, we show up every four years, but those midterms, we are less likely to show up historically. I think we're seeing that change now that people are paying attention. However, we got to keep that going. We cannot lose this momentum. We cannot lose people in this process because we need them to show up in 2022 the same way they showed up in 2020. And I will just add one last thing to that. Um, and actually, Representative Clark mentioned this earlier, but to the point about we're all in play, Representative Clark mentioned that redistricting is happening this year. We in the state legislature will go back, we believe in October at this point, to, to deal with our state legislative seats. We don't yet know how that will impact uh, where our districts are drawn. Uh, likely there will be some change to every person's district. But I say that not just to say that's how this, this will impact all of the 180 seats in the Georgia General Assembly and all 56 seats of the state Senate, et cetera. But I think that's another opportunity where it's gonna be absolutely crucial 
for for uh, for residents in Georgia to make sure that their voices are being heard, that they're watching the process, particularly if they're in you know, so-called communities of interest. Um, we need to be watching out for every form of suppression, and that does include gerrymandering. That includes racial gerrymandering. That includes partisan gerrymandering. And so I think uh, citizens and residents here in Georgia can have a lot to make to do to have their voices heard to make sure that those lines are drawn fairly because they will be drawn uh, largely at the will of of the majority party right now here in, in Georgia. Uh, Representative Young, um, I do have a question. You kind of touched on it a little bit. So the realignment occurs uh, based on, like, I guess your constituents, they, they figure out how to rezone more or less. And, and does that get signed by the governor once the realignment has been configured? That is my understanding. This will be my first uh, redistricting. Uh, we are going to go back in um, this again, like I said, this October for about, I believe, a one-week session where we will essentially pass a law on the what the maps are going to look like, and then the governor would have to sign that into to law. Yeah, and we're also, you know, in the past, and I think it's still the case, um, those, if they do what they have to do up in Washington, um, the, the, they would have to approve they, they the, the pre-election piece of it uh, was wiped out, but the post-election piece of it, I think, still is in play, uh, where they would have to be certified. Um, but it's just like any other law. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Representative Clark, um, I have a question for you. Um, SB 202, because I was doing some some uh, some research on the voting rights of 19 on the voting rights excuse me act of 1965 is SB 202 a violation of the voting rights of uh, 1965 uh, specifically section 2 about suppressing votes um absolutely and if you look at some of the lawsuits that have been filed they they point specifically to um section 2 of the voting rights act um and I think uh, one of the, the issues, and um, Representative Bruce uh, brought it up just now, is that the Supreme Court got it wrong when they said we no longer need preclearance in places that have historically suppressed votes, like in Georgia. Georgia is on that list. We have a history of doing this. This is not our first rodeo. Um, it's not even our second rodeo. This is like, it's in our DNA as a state. Um, unfortunately, it's, a, it's an unfortunate um, truth about our state. And the Supreme Court, when they got rid of those um, enforcement parts of the Voting Rights Act and said, oh, I think that, you know, we've come a long way and I don't think we need this anymore because we've all learned our lesson. It was like the moment they got rid of that, the GOP jumped on the opportunity to suppress votes like clockwork. It was like they were waiting for, um, you know, they were waiting for their get out of jail free card and they they took advantage of it immediately. Um, and so, um, yes, this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Yes, this is a violation of probably the 14th Amendment and probably other amendments in the Constitution as well. This bill, this bill like other bills, um, that have passed through our house 
is unconstitutional. Um, this law is unconstitutional. And um, I hope that we are able to uh, see the courts do right by uh, the people in Georgia in this case. I will say this very uh, cautiously that um, I, while I do not know who are the judges that are uh, seeing these cases, I do know that Mitch McConnell did have free reign to appoint a lot of very conservative federal judges. I do not know that any of those appointees are in Georgia or that they are the ones that are going to be seeing this bill. But we do still have to realize that we have a very conservative Supreme Court right now. And we have lots of uh, conservative leaning judges in the federal courts. And so we're going to have to um, really pay attention to to those cases. Um, and, and I just I, I really do hope that um, um, someone with good sense recognizes that um, there are provisions in this law that are absolutely positively unconstitutional and should not go forward. You know, I have a, a concern about the courts. Um, what you're going to see, if we, if we get some of these courts where the judges uh, come out in favor of uh, overturning these things, they will change the courts. If you have a court that, that has, and there's some that may have three judges as a panel, they'll change it to five. Uh, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, they talked about if, if that court is uh, favorable to uh, what we're talking about, they may want to go from nine to 11. You know, they'll, they'll change it. That's their pattern is to, uh, when, when they don't get what they want, they change what exists. Does have to go through the state Supreme Court first before it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, Representative Bruce? Typically, you know, you, you, you go, it, you know, they, they can appeal it to the federal court and, and it may not go to the state Supreme Court, but it could be appealed to a federal court. Yeah, I will need, just add. You need to talk um, to a lawyer to, to get the exact answer to that. Yeah, I was just as as a lawyer, I will add just briefly. It does not have to, depending on where it's filed, it does not have to go to the state supreme court. For example, if it's filed at the trial court, the federal level, it will stay. Um, it will go directly to the the federal appellate court and then the federal supreme court. So it does not technically have to go through any of the state courts, depending on where it's filed. And that's part of part of the strategy for for any lawyer is where you're going to get the most favorable uh, ruling. But I think part of that is sort of regardless of where you are, whether you're in state courts here in Georgia or in, in, in the, the federal courts down here in Georgia or the 11th Circuit, which is the Georgia, the one assigned to Georgia federal or the state Supreme Court, it, it's very conservative all the way around. Um, and that's been one of the successes uh, at the state level of our, our, our previous governors and you know the people running for elections because they're also elected here, um, but also certainly at the federal level. So it, it kind of doesn't matter almost where you turn, you're, you're gonna run up against that. So it will be a challenge. All right, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead, I'm sorry. 
No, you, you wanted to go ahead and comment. I had another question for you, but I do want to hear your comment. Too, right? no, I was just saying that he and I were saying the same thing. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, earlier um, in a conversation, you had alluded to the fact that they were going to criminalize individuals that were going to be giving away food and, and giving away water to people uh, that were in the polls. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that you confirmed that, but who do you think that they were particular, who do you think that they were actually targeting that? Uh, do you think that it was the elderly? Do you think that it was minorities? Uh, yeah, or anything it's, that it's, it's, it's the people that were likely to be standing in those lines, uh, which is the minority population. Um, you know, the, the they're still going to vote. People are going to be voting absentee. Um, there'll still be absentee voting, but uh, the people most likely to be standing in the line are going to be the people that look like those of us that are on this uh, this, this message right now. And, uh, and I think that was their intent. Uh, I have a bill that I've been pushing for several years that would allow you to be able to vote at any precinct within your county. And with the technology that we have today, I don't see why we shouldn't do that. You know, where you would be able to just go to any polling place within your county, uh, give them your address, they put it in the computer and print out the ballot associated with your address. And uh, that, if they did that, we would get rid of the provisional ballots for the most part, because it wouldn't matter where you, what your polling place was. And um, and when when I went to the chairman of the uh, the former chairman of the committee where that bill is sitting, he said, Representative Bruce, if I make it easier for your folks to vote, they'll go vote, and we don't want to do that. So your bill gonna sit right here. Mm. I mean, he was very clear uh, about it. Needless to say, I wanted to reach across the desk and choke him, but um, yeah, do that. Mm. Understood. Uh, Representative, no. Representative Bruce, you can get away with it. <laughs> uh, Representative Lim, I, I have a question um, in terms of what the potential penalty may be. You know, if someone does violate the Food and, and, and Water Act, we would just call it the Food and Water Provision, uh, misdemeanor, felony, what would be the consequences behind that? It's, uh, it's a misdemeanor. It's, of course, it is a criminal misdemeanor. So it is, you, there are consequences to that. It's not, you know, at the felony level, but it is a, a misdemeanor. That's the simple sort of legal answer. I think even broader than that, um, you're also just going to have not only the impact of, you know, those who might have disabilities or those who are elderly or simply people that, um, you know, are, are coming and didn't expect to have to stand in line and then have to, you know, get hungry. Because we have to understand, like, voting for most people, uh, that there are more important things in a, in a daily basis, particularly those that are really struggling with resources. So that's really going to be the, the major impact. But on the other side of things, because there is this misdemeanor provision, you are going to have people that are afraid of doing something that that is legal. They're, you're going to have questions of, well, um, you know, I'm bringing food to stand in line. If I give it to someone, am I going to get in trouble for that? That might seem silly to a lot of people that are like, well, of course they would never. But for people that are already afraid of, of voting, 
because there are people who are afraid of voting for a myriad of, of reasons, whether their polling precinct has been put in a police station or they are a, there are people that have guns across the street um, or you know certain threatening signs, there are threats of militia. There are people who are afraid of voting. What this does beyond just creating a misdemeanor for people that violate it is creates fear. And it adds to that climate of fear that is going to further suppress the vote. So I think even beyond the legal consequence, that sort of chilling effect is, is even greater, I would say. And can I add just one thing to the, the this point? Line warming has been used at precincts that have these long lines because the truth is, if I got to stand in line for four hours and I've got my kids with me because I came straight from daycare and brought the kids and my kids are hungry and I might just get out of line. And that is the goal. The goal when you have these long lines, that's why, you know, sometimes when the lines are really long and everyone's like, oh, look at all those people showing up. Yes, that's amazing. and That's great. And I love that there are long lines um, as far as participation. I do not love that there are long lines because the long lines are a form of voter suppression. Making someone stand in line at a precinct that is more likely to vote Democratic while the precinct up the street, not so far away, is um uh has 20 machines and you know no lines whatsoever um those you know if your precinct or the likelihood of your precinct voting democrat can uh you can almost uh determine how long your line will be that is suppression and so the goal as uh representative bruce said as he he just said it he made it plain the goal is if you stand in, if you make them stand in line long enough, a few of them people are going to say, you know what, I gotta go. I gotta go home. I wasn't planning on being in line this long. And that's who those types of laws target when they um, try to stop people from being a good neighbor or being a good Samaritan. No one is changing their vote for a bottle of water, a bag of chips, or a granola bar, not even a slice of pizza. No one is changing their vote for that. And I know for a fact that it is not people campaigning. People are told, they are trained to not wear any campaign gear whatsoever, to not talk about elections, to give food and water to anybody. Do not ask them who they're voting for. If they say they want something to eat, give it to them. That is not campaigning. That is not electioneering. So that law is incredibly misguided because it, it criminalizes actually just being a good Samaritan. Yeah, and I, I found it, it incredibly disturbing that even charitable um, charitable organizations would have to, you know, comply with that. Um, and and, and it, the way it kind of seems unfair because there are certain election um, election buildings that are actual churches. So I, I find the irony in that really, really disturbing. Yeah, most definitely. Representative Lim, are there any other states you kind of start touching on this a little earlier? Submission, we'll come back to it. What other states uh, have similar legislation in process? I, I, I was just reading that Texas has this. Um, and I would imagine, because Texas is part of a number of states that Democrats were targeting last year in 2020 along with you know some of the usuals like North Carolina's and Florida's, but Texas, um, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Michigan is, is always there. Um, 
I would very much predict, again, I haven't looked at all 50 states laws, but I do know in Texas, they're already doing that because they are afraid of the efforts that are being made in those states that are similar to what Stacey Abrams have, has spearheaded here. She has shown that if you do long-term investment in, in communities and get them out to vote, it will pay off. We've seen those efforts in, in other states and I guarantee you there are going to be laws because the GOP is very fearful of people turning out to vote. So I, if you look at what was in play again in, in 2020 and what's usually in play, those are where you're likely going to see. I mean, you're going to see this in, in, in every state, but there's a difference between, you know, a GOP person in California proposing this than in some of those states that, that are swing states, not only in terms of state control, but also in, in terms of electoral college control. Representative Bruce, uh, recently Senator Graham um, spoke about how people are playing the race card way too much. Do you see the irony that this bill, this new law here in Georgia is, is really built on suppressing uh, minorities? Well, you know, there's always a, a strategy uh, that, that has been used is to, to, to take what reality is and make it something, something wrong with it. Um, you know, they, when we were in session yesterday uh, and people were going to the well and they were talking, I've been down there since 2003. I heard Jim Crow, I heard um, uh, slavery. I heard all kinds of terms that you would not normally hear uh, in speeches in the well of the House of Representatives. But there were a lot of references. I don't know if the two of you noticed it, uh, to Jim Crow, a lot of references to uh, racism. Uh, it was a, it was a lot, uh, and that's because that is the reality of what's going on. So just because they're crying foul uh, about it doesn't mean that it's not so. And uh, it, it, there's a race war going on, uh, and if you don't talk about you know what you're fighting about, it's kind of hard to you know, to, to solve the problem. Um, I find myself, you know, saying things about racism, uh, about sexism, um, you know, genderism and all these other things, um, because that's what they are discriminating against. And if you don't say it, you know, outright, um, you can't address it, you know. And, and I think that's one of my, my strengths down there is that if you call it the way you see it, um, you know, you, you have a better chance of, of resolving it. You know, when I was, you know, we were, I can't remember how many years it was, but they've had one Saturday session. Like I said, I've been down there since 2003. We've had one Saturday session in that whole period of time. And what was supposed to happen on that one day was that they were going to get rid of all of the Jim Crow laws that were still on the books. Nobody was paying any attention to them, but they were still on the books. So they called themselves having this family day. Uh, they brought the, the kids down um, and they had, you know, all of these bills that we were going to repeal. And I'm sitting there and I was listening to all of that stuff. I'm using stuff because I don't want to say the other words. Um, 
but I'm sitting there listening to it and it really got to me. And we had two people there, uh, two members that were really advocates for a lot of the crap that was going on. And I kind of lost it, you know, and I went to the well that day, which I, I mean, I go to the well, but I don't go very often. Uh, if you go too often, people don't pay any attention. And uh, But I went to the well that day and I said, I'm glad we're getting rid of the Jim Crow laws, but we still got Sue Crow and Earl Crow. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting in front of me. And, uh, and I said, we got to get rid of that too. And uh, the, 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 the lady, the Sue lady, she had a bill that was pending that would have um, mandatory death penalty for anybody that was convicted of child molestation. But our argument was, you know, nobody wants a child molested, but you have uh, people that get accused falsely, you know, especially, you know, uh, stepdads will get accused and sometimes convicted falsely. And you don't want mandatory death penalty, you know, because if you made a mistake, you can't undo that mistake. And uh, an irony was that about two weeks before we were going to take the vote up, her son got convicted of child molestation. And she disappeared. We haven't heard from her since. Uh, the, the bill didn't pass. But, you, you know, we, we just got to be conscious of what's going on down there. And, and the laws that we make, uh, the things that we do impact people, and we just have to make sure that we are conscious of what we're doing. And wow. I, just, I want to add very briefly to that, to the argument that the race card is being played too much. I think <laughs> the voter fraud card is being played way too much. And I will point that to an example that I just realized in my head. So even if you believe that there were 11,000 fraudulent votes or 13,000 or wherever in, in 2020, I just remembered that when I was flagged as a non-citizen voter, I got the same letter by then Secretary of State Karen Handel, who then became a member of Congress. There were 10,000 of us, all of us, or an overwhelming majority at least, were citizens or, or, or immigrants rather. So even from that one example, from that one year in that one election, you have 11,000 people whose votes are being suppressed already. And then you think of every other election year where this is happening. And that's why we say, to the extent that people think that any the voter suppression card is being played too much, it is being played to the extent that it exists and far more so that in a factual manner than the extent that this voter fraud narrative, which again is somehow the narrative that is won the day, uh, is being played. So I think we need to play our cards as much as we can because clearly these other cards, which shouldn't be winning, are the ones that are for some reason. I can I can just follow up with that with uh, something that I told my friend the other day. It was about COVID, but I think it um, it um, it also applies here. It is much easier for people to believe a convenient lie than an inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth is there was no voter fraud. The convenient lie is that they couldn't have won or they couldn't have lost unless something was wrong. And so people just prefer the convenient lie. 
and that is what they have leaned on. And so the race card is not a card. It's the reality. Racism is it's, it's we're not playing a card. This is life. This is what's happening. It's like when chick got up in the well talking about, oh, voter suppression is just a focus group tested phrase. No, ma'am. Voter suppression is what my ancestors, the people who came before me, people who have died, who have bled, who have cried, who have really fought to vote. Not the people in your family, the people in my family. It's in about no focus group. This is about real life. This has actually happened. And to try to write it off, it's just focus group tested. And, oh, we're just working on different phrases to figure out what phrase gets people more riled up. That's what y'all do. Don't put y'all's behavior on us because we're talking about something that's actually real. Y'all make up stuff and then try to use that to get people riled up. Wow. Powerful. We have a question from a, a viewer. Um, in the severity of this, if the severity of this bill is equated to the horrible label of Jim Crow 2.0, we know African-Americans should and will be alarmed as this is just another case of racial conditioning. How can we speak to Republican voters, especially white folks, and appeal to them regarding the nonsense that this bill creates? What do they lose if it passes? Who's that for? Anyone? Any? He 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 posed it to to the panel. Uh, okay, I, <laughs> um, I I was just hesitant to, to answer it because it seems more and more. I, I appreciate the 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 willingness to to reach out to Republicans. And you know, when I gave a well speech on SB two hundred two, I I was the one that sort of made that outreach. I tried to make them feel guilty. But I, I knew that that wasn't going to work. But listen, there, there is cert, certain things that, that that could be used. Like, for example, with the, the criminalization of handing out th the things to people in line. Do you care about people with, with disabilities? Do you care about uh, voters who are elderly? Do you care about voters that you know, you know um, that are older that might not have their their voter ID at, at the ready or might not be able to access it easily because of mobility and and other reasons? Um, I'm not sure how far that will take the, the day, um, but those are also their realities. And those are very nonpartisan um, and also cross-racial realities for people with disabilities, for those who are older, uh, those that, uh, again, are don't have in socioeconomic means to, to necessarily have an ID. We know that the voter ID uh, problem impacts them more so than others. Uh, again, immigrants, that crosses all um, sort of immigrant lines, whether those are immigrants from Africa, Asia, et cetera. Uh, this is something that will make it worse for them as it has for me with voter ID laws. So those are some of the factual realities that one could use to, to say, this is, how, this is the bottom line and how it will impact people that you purport to care about. I won't say that that will carry the day, but those are still factual realities. Yeah, I will um, add to that really quickly that in my well speech on HB 531, which was the first omnibus election bill, that one did not pass. Um, but I, I spoke about the fact that in their efforts to target certain people, they're going to target their own people, too, um, because. When you target absentee voting, you uh, discount the fact that it was actually Republicans that wanted absentee voting. 
And they have used that as a tool to, to get out the vote for years. And it's only when Stacey Abrams decided, hey, we should be doing that too, that all of a sudden it became bad and fraudulent and you know ripe for abuse and all these things. It was fine for 15 years. And it wasn't until we started doing it that they all of a sudden felt like there was something wrong with that process. So when they mess with it, they are going to lose their own voters. I'm telling you right now, they are they do not like the voting machines. Those voting machines that we have, they do not like them. So they want to vote on paper. The only option we have to vote on paper in Georgia is absentee ballots. Well, when you screw with absentee ballots, when you shorten the period that you have to apply for the absentee ballot and you shorten even more the period that the counties have to send the absentee ballots to out to voters. So it increases the likelihood that some people won't actually get their ballot. You're screwing with them, too. And so they need to know that they need to know that this is not just going to affect people of color, because the thing is, if you tell them it affects people of color, they don't care. But if you tell them now, Jim Bob and, you know, Mary and all the people that we used to that used to come to the GOP county party uh, meeting and we would hand them absentee ballots at that meeting and tell everyone to fill them out and go ahead and apply for your ballot, we're not gonna be able to do that in the same manner that we were able to do that before. We're not going to be able to because we changed the law. And so now we're gonna make you go vote on those machines you don't trust. And then when the outcome of the election doesn't go out your way, you're gonna distrust them even more. So, you know, they're gonna be affected whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And they'll see, they'll see. Well, I know we're coming up on time here. We do have a few more questions. Eric, I think you have another one. Yeah, I do. Um, Representative Bruce and anybody else who wants to chime in, please feel free. Ultimately, does anyone think that uh, our former 40, uh, 45th president, because we really don't like saying his name, but does anybody think our 45th president ultimately was behind this change with the SB202? I, I don't know that he personally, I think, I think people are giving, this is my opinion, giving Trump way more credit for being smart enough to think all of this up than he deserves. I, I think that he's just the the voice because he was willing to say and do pretty much anything. Uh, but I think there's, there's an organization of some sort uh, that's behind him. Uh, basically just using him as the mouthpiece. I, I just can't give him credit for being that smart to, to think all of this up. Okay, fair enough. Eric, that sounds uh, a little familiar, doesn't it? It sounds very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I do think though, however, that he was the catalyst and that just his voice and his boisterousness and his uh, objections. Right, his willingness, to, his willingness yeah. to, to say what others won't say and to do what others won't do. Right, and, like and that helped propel this process. Yeah. But I, don't, I, I think that there's a, a, a overall plan um, for how they're going to keep power. And he was a vehicle, he was a mouthpiece for whatever this planning group is that's trying to, to keep power. He didn't, he didn't come up with all this himself. I can he agree with that. He didn't have the mental capacity to do it. <laughs> 
I got to agree with that. Okay. Uh, does anyone think that he is going to make another run for president? Uh, if he's not in jail. I don't want to speak into existence anything of the sort, so I will not answer the question. <laughs> All right. Here's Thank the what Representative Clark said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll second that. <laughs> so, Representative I'm Clark, empty, but I'm third. <laughs> you may not be able to go into much detail, and we respect that. Um, let's talk about Representative Cannon. Can you tell the audience what happened and what went on to your knowledge? Is this for me? Yes. Oh, um, well, uh, from for my knowledge, we got we adjourned that day around five ish, uh, five thirty that day. Um, and I remember distinctly because I was trying to rush home to get my daughter to track practice that started at six thirty. Um, the governor uh, scheduled to sign that bill. Now, for context, that bill got passed in the House in the morning, passed in the Senate that evening and then went straight to the governor's desk. Like in the history of the time, I haven't been there that long. That was really fast. It was a really fast process. So anyway, he scheduled to have it at 6.30. He told the press he was having it at 6.30. Normally on a bill that he is proud of, he will proudly sign that bill out in the rotunda or out in the, um, in front of the South Wing steps, and uh, there will be people standing behind him, and people can watch, and the press are there, and it's a it's a little bit of fanfare for a bill that was a hundred pages. You would think he would be proud enough to do it out in the open. However, instead, he chose to do it inside of his office, and he only allowed six people to be in the room with him. These six people happen to be six white males. So you got seven white males in a room and the the scene is that um, while the governor is signing this bill, above him is a portrait of a South Georgia plantation. So we're signing Jim Crow 2.0 in this room, flanked by white men in front of a plantation. So that's the scene. Keep in mind, uh, we had on masks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and everyone had on masks. Per yeah, perfect. So outside of this door, Representative Cannon and a small group of protesters, probably like five or six of them, um, were outside of the door. Representative Cannon knocks on the door. Um, the police officer says, "Oh, you can't go in there." And she's like, "Why? I work here. This is a, a signing of a bill that just passed out of here. I'm a legislator." And the police officer's like, you can't go in there. She knocks again. They basically get upset that she is challenging their authority. And they commence to drag her away in handcuffs. Um, and at some point in the scuffle, the and, and by scuffle, I mean them dragging her and dragging literally backwards. Like they didn't even give her the courtesy of letting her see where she is walking. She, they are pulling her backwards. They claim she stepped on their foot. Well, I don't know about y'all, but if you're having to walk backwards, you can't see where you're going. I mean, you know, you're liable to step anywhere. I don't even know that his foot got stepped on. There's no real evidence of that because I watched the videos and I saw nothing like that. 
Um, but anyway, they uh, from that point, they put her in a police car and they charged her with two felonies, um, felony obstruction and another felony for disturbing the legislative session. That second one doesn't make sense. We were out of session. Um, and they say the governor signing a bill is an extension of session. I would challenge that um, immensely. I do not believe that to be true. He is a part of the executive branch. He is not in the legislature. So, uh, you know, but that's neither here nor there. It'll be heard in court, I'm sure. She has a legal team that's going to fight this. Um, altogether, it was um, her challenging authority, her going and saying that what you were doing is wrong and you know it's wrong because you're doing it behind doors. Knocking on a door um, caused her to be charged with a felony. But the real crime was is what was happening inside of that room. And you mentioned that there was a small group of protesters, five or six. And I just read uh, today, as a matter of fact, that the uh, from the police report, the trooper stated that in the back of his mind, January 6th was on his mind. And he didn't want that to um, to be recreated here. I thought that was extremely laughable and it was a it was a very poor uh, excuse for his actions. Um, any thoughts on that? Have you guys saw his, seen his uh, report or anything? I saw the report. I read it from top to bottom. My response to that is if, number one, if he was afraid or if he was reminiscing on January 6th, then he probably needs to be mentally evaluated because there is nothing equivalent to a bunch of white men with gal with um, gallows or to to lynch people with zip ties with Confederate flags and Trump flags storming our U.S. Capitol to stop a democratic process and gotten do God knows what to the vice president and a woman knocking on a door. The two are not equivalent. There is no equivalency whatsoever. And if he believes that, then he probably should not be in his position. And I um, I say that and I would say that to his face if I had the opportunity. So we're in a final couple of questions here. Um, Representative Bruce, you've been you've seen a lot since taking office in 2003. What are you concerned about right now outside of SB 202 here in Georgia and what inspires you about where Georgia is going? Well, the, the 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 fear that's my mayor calling, but my my concern is that we are going back in time, uh, and that if we don't pay attention to what's going on, uh, we're going to find ourselves fighting the same battles uh, that we fought many years ago. I was watching a movie the other day, um, The Butler. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yes, sir. And as I was sitting there watching the movie and, and seeing the, the battles they were fighting back in the 60s, um, and I was saying, well, that's the same thing we're doing now. We're fighting those same battles right now. And uh, so that's, you know, what keeps me up at night, you know, is that uh, where I thought we had made some progress, it appears that we haven't made very much um, at all. Uh, as far as where I see Georgia going, uh, I, I think that we are in a good situation 
and, and that there are people who are concerned about what's happening. Um, there are people, uh, black, white, uh, Asian, you know, all that, 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 that are saying that this is wrong. Um, and I think that that is the majority, but the majority is not as vocal as the minority. And in some instances, the minority has more resources to get their message out. When you consider that the majority of the wealth in this country lies in the hands of what a percent of the population, uh, that's a small group with a whole lot of resources uh, to get the message out um, against you know people standing together and doing the right thing. Uh, so that's the fear: is that uh, the rich minority will will buy their way. Um, as we go forward, if, if, if the rest of us don't uh, stay conscious and, and, and fight this thing. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. My final question, um, I speak for myself here. I'm sick and tired of, of praying for, for people who have lost their lives due to senseless acts of violence. Uh, we no longer feel safe in our schools. We no longer feel safe in our churches. Now we don't feel safe in nail salons and, and massage parlors. What is it that we can do to control guns? Now we're, we're seeing so many attacks on our Asian American uh, brothers and sisters. Right down the street from me, um, where I live was, was where it happened here in Atlanta. Uh, what is it that we can do to... Uh, get control on, on guns. And, and I'll open that up to the panel. Anyone who would like to take that? Yeah. You know, when you say gun control, what, what do you mean? Well, I know that's a little vague, uh, Representative Bruce. You know, um, getting, personally, this is my personal opinion. I don't see the need for a person to own an assault rifle. I don't see the, the need for that at all. Um, having a, a handgun or maybe even a shotgun to protect my home is one thing to have an AR 15 or 14 or whatever it's called. I don't understand the, the need for that. Um, but these guns that are, are, are in the hands of people that are, are taking these, these innocent lives, how can we stop that, prevent that from happening in the future? You know, I, I got mixed emotions about some of this, um, because if you remember what I said earlier, I think that this is a bigger picture than what we've been talking about. Um, this is, a, you know, about who's going to be in charge uh, in, as time goes on. And sometimes he who has the bigger gun, if you think back in history, and I, I really believe that history repeats itself if you don't, if you're not conscious of it. And, um, if you think back, um, Great Britain and, and, and England, these were, this was a small portion. If you think about Great Britain, that's not a lot of area. And, but they had big guns. And they went into other countries and took over those countries because their guns were bigger. Even those other countries were bigger. They didn't have the guns. And this was one of those countries. Um, they came here and they took over. Um, 
wiped out almost the entire Indian population, put them on, you know, you know, put them on reservations and things like that. And, and I think that there's a fear uh, among some of our white, uh, you know, white members of, of, of this population that they're going to have to be armed um, in order to, to maintain control and power. So while they're doing that, they're telling us that we need gun control. And, and I'm concerned because what I don't want to happen is to find, and it may not happen in my lifetime, but I, I don't want to see us, you know, disarmed. And, and then they, as the enemy, come forward and they are armed. I know this sounds really bad, but, you know, I, Marvin, you're shaking your head with me. So I, I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm thinking of the Black Panthers in the 60s, so. <laughs> yeah. You know, you 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 got to, you got to, I don't want to see our people disarmed while they're getting armed. So can I just push back on that and say that I don't think gun control is about disarming people. Um, I know how to shoot. I love shooting. I'm actually a really good shooter. Um, I have shot rifles. I have shot um, different types of handguns. Um, I actually prefer handguns and I know I'm probably one of the few people that if you've shot both, um, most people prefer the rifle to handguns. It's a little bit easier to shoot, a little less kickback. Um, but that said, um, when we talk about gun control, it's not about disarming people. We're not saying that we're going to take anyone's guns. I think what we're saying is that people who have guns, we want them to be responsible with those guns. So when I think of gun control, I think of universal background checks. So people who shouldn't have the guns don't have the guns. When I think of gun control, I think of things like safe storage so that kids are not shooting themselves or shooting their little brother or shooting their neighbor in the head because they got access to a gun that they should not have had access to. When I think about um, gun legislation, I think about requiring that people have some level, are able to show some level of proficiency on how to actually use that gun. The same way we have to show some level of proficiency before we can get in a car and drive off a car lot, because just like a gun, a car could kill people if you don't know how to operate it correctly. And so I think small things like that are things that are actually have bipartisan support across the aisle. This is not um, partisan, but those things get lost because the moment you say gun control, people say, oh, you just want to take all of our guns. And I'm like, I don't want to take your guns because I don't want my guns to be taken. That's not what the that's not what gun control is about. And that's why I don't even use the term gun control. That's why I use common sense gun legislation, because what we're talking about is making legislations that keeps people safe with their guns. Like if you have a gun, use it safely, use it responsibly. That's what I think of when I think of um, those things. But no, I am absolutely no to disarming because of what Representative Bruce said. And because a lot of times the arguments for disarming actually comes from a fear of people who look like me having a gun. They, you know, they are, and it's weird, it's ironic because it's not people who look like me that are doing these mass shootings. And honestly, when it comes to threats to security in our country, 
white supremacy is that that and and a white man with a gun is more of a threat than me with a gun or even someone uh, that has also been stereotyped with guns, such as uh, a, a person who presents as Muslim, them having a gun. They're, though a white man with a gun, statistically, is more of a threat. Yet we use the, um, we sometimes we use these tactics to uh, try to disarm people because they're not afraid of the white man with a the gun. They're actually afraid of people like, Representative Bruce and Representative Lim and myself and you all having the gun. And so that's where those laws are kind of trying to are kind of born from. So responsible gun ownership should really be what we're talking about and making sure that people who shouldn't have guns don't, but people who do have guns use them responsibly. And, and I'll just add to that. And my background of this is I've been a gun violence professional slash attorney for five years. I agree with what uh, both Representative Bruce and Representative Clark. So when Representative Clark gave her her litany of good gun policy, totally agree with that, particularly safe storage and training. If uh, everyone were trained and saved, uh, safely stored their guns, the 360 million firearms that currently exist in America, uh, most of them would not be shooting up innocent lives or, or, or anyone really. At the same time, I, I get what Representative Bruce is, is saying because there are times when we talk about what seem like good, and, and I blame my own GVP or gun violence prevention community, we have not historically been, first of all, led by BIPOC or minority people. And second of all, I think sometimes we don't think of unintended consequences because um, firearms law is essentially criminal law. And as we know, most criminal law is applied unevenly. The example that just comes to mind very, very quickly is um, Dr. Uh, Dr. and Representative Clark mentioned, you know, Muslims. I remember after the shooting in the Orlando nightclub in June 2016, there was this rush to like, no fly, no buy. If you're on the terrorist watch list, you shouldn't have a gun. And then you think of the terrorist watch list and who the people are on there and how that's constituted who would be disproportionately impacted. And that's why I was just saying the Black Panthers earlier. And because I always think it's ironic that you had, you know, then Governor Reagan in California that was for quote gun control because of the people who had the guns. But all of that is to say, depending on who's in power, they're just like with voting, they're always going to try to phrase or frame the narrative in ways that is still ultimately going to disproportionately impact certain populations. And we have to be careful about that always with, with gun violence prevention, sensible gun ownership. But I think at the end of the day, you know, to, to really hammer it home with, with the question of what can we do, I think all of us on this call would agree that it is far more than, than firearms. And it's even far more to do with, with even the mental health, as important as that is, both on the side of people that might perpetrate firearms violence or those who might be harmed by it. Of course, here in Atlanta, and particularly being in the API community, that's something that is certainly on my mind as well. But the, the thing that's interesting to me is as this country has become increasingly polarized and continues to be racially divided, uh, we are gonna have to find some way to, to humanize one another because those 360 firearms are going to be around for, for a while and people are going to have hatred for a while. And as long as Democrat, you know, as long as Republicans are power are in power, we're not going to get those sensible gun laws. So what can we do to humanize one another? Cause I keep coming back to the fact that 
you know, in the history of, of America, you know, the, the right has tried secession, they've tried insurrections, they've tried deportations, they've tried forced displacements, trails of tears, they've tried uh, exclusionary acts, um, they have tried internments, they have tried everything. But no matter who, whether they try to get away or they try to send us away, we're still having to live together. And we live together in more and more seemingly more segregated societies, which doesn't help. But we still have to live together. So this is not the, the straight answer to the question, but it's the broad answer of like, to me, we have to figure out a way that we can humanize one another, but particularly figure out a way for as minorities do have increasing power, BIPOC people, black people, Asian people, et cetera, as they get more power, how do we not get seen as a threat? That's not our responsibility to do that by any means. I'm not saying that, but that I keep coming back to that and I haven't figured out how, because to me, it does go far beyond gun policy. It does go far beyond mental health. It goes to how we see people, how that perpetrator on March 16th saw um, the, the, the intentional acts of horrific violence he was gonna create came from somewhere. How do we address that? I don't know, but I think it's far deeper than, you know, the firearms problem, as important as that is. I mean, that is my profession. Okay. Thank you for that. You guys offered lots of different perspectives on that, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, we're coming to an end here. Um, we'd like to give an opportunity for any closing remarks that you all may want to share before we sign off. Um, Representative Bruce, start with you. Uh, I just want to thank you for uh, inviting me to participate tonight. Um, this gave me a, a, an opportunity uh, to learn more about my colleagues, too. Um, and uh, I, I think we we're all on the same page uh, with our concern for uh, where this country uh, was heading under the uh, former president, uh, former administration. And uh, I think we're all looking for great things to come out of the, the new administration. Uh, we're looking forward to changes in leadership uh, here at the local level as well, and being able to do things that will help uh, bring this, you know, this country back to where it should be and the state back to where it should be. Uh, so thank you for allowing me to participate. Thank you for being here, really appreciate it. Representative Lim. Thank you again for bringing light to this very important issue. And we really deconstructed it in, in far deeper ways than I've been accustomed to. And I really appreciate that. The one you know, final word from me is this might seem over, heck, it's overwhelming to me. I'm a freshman legislator, so that certainly has to do with it. This is so overwhelming. And we talk about all the, whether that's gun violence or voting, it, it is so overwhelming and we think of the monumental, to use Dr. and Representative Clark's words, the monumental implications of 2022. Um, but we also asked, you know, what can we do? I would advise and recommend people, to, you know, as, as overwhelming as it might be, so much of this stuff really is happening at the very local level. Um, Representative Clark and I didn't have time to talk about what's been happening in Gwinnett, but so much of it is happening at the local level. So, you know, you might be overwhelmed by this, but attend your county election board meetings or you know be locally engaged whether that's you know up the day of voting or in the lead up to because that level of local engagement is what is the most important again it's not just about what happens on election day from the top of the ballot down 
elections and movements are really done at the local level. So as overwhelming as this might seem, including to me, I would urge people to continue to think and act locally, uh, perhaps above all. Thank you for sharing that. And Representative Clark. Well, first I wanna say thank you all to for allowing me to be a part of this panel. I really appreciate being on a panel with Representative Bruce, and I really, really appreciate being on a panel with my fellow delegation member, Marvin Lim. The questions were amazing. They were thought provoking, and I'm I really appreciate that, you know, oftentimes when we get on a podcast, we get to talk about things, but we don't necessarily get to get into the weeds like we did today. And so I appreciate that opportunity because I think it's really important that the things that are going on at our state capitol, people need to know about. But to Marvin's point, I also think it's really important that people know um, what's going on in their local communities as well. Know what your school board is doing, know what your county commission is doing, Right now, it's really important for everyone to know what their county elections boards is doing. Go to your county website, click on elections and sign up or subscribe to know or get notifications of when election board meetings are happening. Because right now is not the time to disengage. Right now, we need all hands on deck, all um, everyone, you know, working together because we have a hill to climb for 2022, and it starts with taking steps now to get up that hill. Thank you so much. I think when talking to people, you know, I think we think, you know, oh, we're blue, we're okay now. No, this this kind of proves, you know, SB 202, this proves that we, we have some more work to do. So thank you all for enlightening um, our audience and, and myself and Eric uh, on this very important topic. We really appreciate your time I know you just got out of session. Uh, we would love to have you all back on the show anytime. Um, Eric, do you have any any parting words? You know what? I think everybody pretty much said a mouthful. Um, again, I want to extend you know the same thank you that James did. You know, to the three representatives, you guys have been pulling in some seriously heavy hours. So we definitely appreciate you, you know, taking the time to educate us. You know, in, inform us, and and definitely show that there are some, you know, some legislatures that are out here that really do have their communities in mind when they go to work every day. So I personally feel that with representatives like you three, that the state of Georgia is definitely in capable hands. And um, like the three of you were alluding to, 2022 is right around the corner, but today is when you need to start thinking about what direction you want your community to go towards. Don't just wait for the presidential elections. Don't just wait for the gubernatorial uh, uh, elections. Make sure that your mayor represents you, your city council represents you, your school board represents you, your treasurer represents you. So get out there wherever you are, vote, and make sure that you're not voting just for the sake of voting. Make sure that you do your due diligence on the candidate that's going to represent you because you only have one opportunity to vote within a certain time frame. So please make it count. Well said, well said. Well, we'd like to sign off by saying you heard it from our mouths to your ears. Um, we thank everyone for out there that was listening, the questions that came through. We weren't able to get to some of them, but once again, invitation is definitely open for you three to come back anytime. Thank you once again for your time tonight, guys. All right. Stay safe, Georgia.